All right, we've got a, about 10 minutes left, I think, for our final segment. So many things to talk about. How about the weather? Mark Twain once famously said, everyone talks about the weather, but no one does anything. Of course, that's all be turned around the 21st century in an era of uh, global warming deniers. It's more like everyone's doing something to change the weather, but nobody's talking about it. And yeah, climate and weather aren't exactly the same, but you know what I mean. All right, we're fond of quoting experts on this program. Isn't everybody that has a, as a talk show? So let's quote from some of the re- least reliable sources we know of, the Wall Street Journal. Although I did like this piece by Jonah Lehrer, as uh, repeated in the Week magazine, who said, The future is impossible to predict, and the track record of people who make predictions for a living confirms it. Lehrer quotes Philip Tetlock, a University of California psychologist who spent 25 years monitoring the predictions of pundits. For his study, he chose 284 prominent economists, foreign policy specialists, and journalists whose opinions were often quoted. Beginning in the 80s, he peppered them with questions on topics ranging from future elections to economic trends to international relations. Would the dot-com bubble burst? Would Quebec secede from Canada? Etc. When the results were in on 82,000 predictions, the vast majority of experts performed worse than random chance, with an accuracy rate below 50%. Well, we should clarify, you know, being under 50% doesn't mean you're less than chance if the items have less than a 50-50 chance of happening. But anyway, according to Tetlock, or at least Lehrer, liberals, moderates, and conservatives were all equally ineffective. The most famous experts tended to do the worst. The reason, while all the experts were victims of confirmation bias, ignoring evidence that contradicts a preferred theory or narrative, those with grandiose reputations were especially overconfident and thus more likely to ignore contrary facts. In other words, our political discourse is driven in large part by people whose opinions are less accurate than a coin toss. Well, in my considered opinion, that's not necessarily so. And by the way, we're still taking a hard look at... uh, and bringing Russ Baker back to be one of our in-house pundits in the future. We think his book, A Family of Secrets, is a hell of a read, and again, recommend it to you. But to, to go back to that story about the CIA using modern art as a weapon, and we should note the author of that, of that article, Francis Stoner Saunders, apparently has had a book out on this topic for years. The book's titled, Who Paid the Piper? The CIA and the Cultural Cold War. You should note that it wasn't just art. In a summary of this article written by others, it was noted that uh, U.S. and European anti-communist publications receiving direct or indirect funding included Partisan Review, Kenyan Review, New Leader, Encounter, and many other magazines. Among the intellectuals who were funded and promoted by the CIA were Irving Kristol, father of the oft-quoted pundit Bill Kristol, who's distinguished by the fact that he's never right, also, Melvin Lasky, Isaiah Berlin, Stephen Spender, Sidney Hook, Daniel Bell, Dwight McDonald, Robert Lowell, Hannah Arendt, Mary McCarthy, and numerous others. The CIA, under the prodding of Sidney Hook and Melvin Lasky, was instrumental in funding the Congress for Cultural Freedom, a kind of cultural NATO that grouped together all sorts of anti-Stalinist leftists and rightists. They were completely free to defend Western cultural and political values, attack Stalinist totalitarianism, and to tiptoe gently around U.S. racism and imperialism, according to an article by James Petrus in the Monthly Review. Who noted in the article what was particularly bizarre about this collection of CIA-funded intellectuals 
was not only their political partisanship, but their pretense that they were disinterested seekers of truth, iconoclastic humanists, free-spirited intellectuals, or artists for art's sake, who counterposed themselves to the corrupted, committed house hacks of the Stalinist apparatus. Like I say, we need to take a, a closer look at this in the future. But another article just whaps me upside the head that really reminds me of this whole art CIA thing. AP article by Laura Wadez Munoz titled, Pedro Pan Exiles Recall Lonely U.S. Arrival. Article notes, the last thing 13-year-old Mercedes Arguiz's father told her before she boarded the plane from Cuba to the U.S. was, I will see you for Christmas. That was nearly a half century ago, just days before the Cuban Missile Crisis. She never saw him again. Arguiz was one of more than 14,000 Cuban children spirited out of the country between late 1960 and 62 on the so-called Operation Pedro Pan flights organized by the Roman Catholic Church following the Cuban Revolution. Friday of last week, she flew from Northern Virginia to join more than 100 other Cuban-Americans in Miami to mark the 50th anniversary of their exodus and tour the South Florida refugee camps they first stayed in. The Pedro Pan effort, the term is Spanish for the fictional character Peter Pan, was organized at the behest of Cuban parents, fearful of the new communist government's efforts to take control of their children. Most of the refugees spent time in one of, one of several Florida refugee camps before they moved into foster homes or orphanages across the U.S. The children thought they'd be reunited with their parents within a few weeks, but heightened tension between the two countries following the missile crisis meant many had to wait years to see their parents again. Some never did. The article notes, Cuban officials and some researchers have long maintained the effort was a CIA-backed plot to create a brain drain from the island. The U.S. government denies those accusations. Mercedes Arguis, however, notes that it was her own experience that prompted her departure. After the government shut down her Catholic school, she was transferred to a communist-run public school where she did well. Asked to recite a poem at the, at the school year's closing ceremony, she planned to thank her family, friends, and God, she says. A teacher warned her to replace God with the name of revolutionary leader Fidel Castro. She didn't, and a short time later, she was selected to go to Russia to continue her studies. And boy, this is a story we need to know more about. And we start talking about the weather and got sidetracked. Um, in case you haven't noticed, we're having record-breaking heat here in Northern California. Despite it being the middle of November, temperatures have been over 80. In Los Angeles and San Diego last week, it apparently hit 100. Is our climate changing? Of course not, say <laughs> the deniers. And what they're saying is that this may be a La Nina year, as opposed to an El Nino year, where things are warmer than average. In La Nina, apparently the ocean's a little bit cooler than normal. And as a result, the jet stream pushes Pacific storms more to the north. So the Pacific Northwest stays cold and rainy, and the Southwest remains warm and dry. Sacramento, described as on the dividing line in an article by Hudson Sangri in the B, could go either way. Personally, I am rooting for wetter than average, because all, although our governor has been in the forefront of doing, uh, doing things to control CO2 emissions in the atmosphere, he does not earn such high marks when it comes to water conservation. I'm sure Arnold would like to just put a big, uh, big spigot up here in Northern California and send everything we got south. 
All right, uh, final discussion of the of the day. November 7th, uh, there was a special to the B, an op-ed piece by Larry Collins, described as a commercial salmon fisherman who lives in San Francisco. Larry, uh, Larry Collins's piece uh, promoted a second piece a week later, in response by Thomas Birmingham, general manager of the Westlands Water District. There's also a cover story in the B related to this that notes that fall Chinook salmon numbers in the valley are way up after some bad years. So I'm sure we're going to get Dan Bacher or someone else in the show to talk about uh, this controversy, but I want to close by quoting from what Larry Collins had to say. He started out by saying, I've been a California commercial fisherman for almost three decades. For most of that time, Chinook salmon constituted 70% or more of my business. Salmon gave me a prosperous living, and they supported the communities that I called home. The past few years, everything changed. California's 2008 and 2009 salmon seasons were closed following a catastrophic crash in the stocks. He goes on below that. What caused this disaster? Lack of water. Diversions from the Sacramento-San Joaquin... Joaquin Delta, south of corporate farms, have deprived salmon of water they need in their spawning streams. Further, huge government-run delta pumps that send taxpayer-subsidized water south destroy great numbers of young salmon trying to migrate downriver to the ocean. The biological facts are bad enough. Even worse are the power plays of big agribusiness. Faced with modest restrictions on subsidized water deliveries to protect fish, big ag, bleated like an old sheep, claimed economic ruin, and politicians rewarded their calculated hysteria by augmenting their supplies with, quote, emergency, unquote, deliveries. Foremost among the corporate crybabies is Westland's Water District. At 600,000 acres, the country's largest irrigation district. Westland's is a junior water rights holder, meaning it's legally the last in line for water during drought. Only a few hundred corporate entities make up this agricultural empire, plus a battery of lawyers working to overcome their junior water right status. He goes on, From all the whaling, you'd have thought Westlands was in worse shape than the salmon fishing ports. But surprise, Westlands not only had enough water for their crops, they had leftovers. In fact, they had a 2010 surplus of about 450,000 acre feet, enough water to supply 1.8 million urbanites for one year. So... They decided to trade 150,000 acre-feet to the Metropolitan Water District and generate $30 million of benefit for themselves. In other words, Westlands is receiving subsidized water at low rates, then peddling it to cities to generate a windfall. Meanwhile, salmon, a public resource, are going belly up. Fishermen are going bankrupt, and the communities that depend on commercial fishing, recreational angling, and seafood processing are hollowed out. Of course, a week later, there was a rebuttal to this, and we're we're not quite sure where the truth lies, but we are going to return to that issue, I promise. Our thanks to our old pal, Will Durst. One of our new pals, Greg Stebbin, will be joining us on next week's program to talk about uh, the controversy over salt in our diets. That will be our annual Thanksgiving program, being that we're on, on Thursdays. Of course, every year we do a Thanksgiving show. We'll probably do one of our favorite encores uh, for that which may or may not include our favorite piece from Ira Glass's This American Life. The, uh, the legendary piece by Jack Hitt about a, uh, a high school performance of Peter Pan is just a classic. We're probably going to go with that one. Whatever we go with, it'll be fun. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.